I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. Today is a very special and exciting episode for us. We're going to try something a little different and mix it up. Back in February, we went to New York for the Forensic Files 2 premiere. While there, we made all sorts of forensic friends, one of which was Miles from the show Forensic Miles. Miles was not only a delightful person to hang out with, she also has a great show wherein she revisits all episodes of Forensic Files and gives you additional information and her and her boyfriend's take on the story. Anyway, I say all of this because today will be a little different. This story was chosen from a Forensic Files episode, so we decided that I will be telling you the story, doing my regular research and storytelling, Emily will touch on the science behind the forensics, and Miles will give us her Forensic Files expert take. You can also check out her full episode on this same story called Fired Up. So without further ado, I present the story of 34-year-old Roxanne Duran, how her murder, presumed to be a closed case, still leaves some feeling a lack of justice. On Sunday afternoon of February 6, 1996, a call to 911 was made to the Forest Grove Fire Department. There was a fire engulfing the home of Roxanne and Derek Duran in Gale Creek, Oregon. Neighbors as far as a quarter mile away could see the smoke. Located 30 miles to the northwest of Portland, Gale Creek is an unincorporated area that falls into the jurisdiction of Forest Grove. Home to the actual Gale Creek and other forested lands, it's ideal for camping, hiking, fishing, or buying large plots of land to build your dream home. And that's exactly what Derek and Roxanne Duran did. Married for seven years, they both worked with computers, and Derek had a successful position at Intel. It was Roxanne's love of horses that brought them to the rural area of Gale Creek. There, she could have acres of land to ride and train her beloved horses. The ruralness of where they lived turned out to be a hindrance when it came time to call for help. With the flames licking the outside of the windows of the home, it was over 20 minutes before the fire department arrived. By then, there was not much of the home that could be saved. During the three hours it took to put the blaze out, Derek arrived home from the grocery store. It was upon his arrival that he screamed that his wife's car was there, meaning she was still inside the home. Eventually, when the flames subsided, the fears of Derek and the first responders were answered. What remained of his wife was found among the ash in the garage. While Derek and Roxanne had lived at their Gale Creek home for a handful of years, it was currently being worked on. They were adding a 1,500-square-foot addition on the side of the house, which at the time of the fire went from being framework and stairs to kindling, literally adding fuel to the fire. Soon, all of the wheels were turning. The medical examiner started to work on identifying and completing an autopsy of the body from the house. Arson investigators searched for a cause of the fire, and police spoke with Derek. Derek claimed to have been grocery shopping for about an hour, but before he had left, he realized it was quite cold and decided to use the dryer to keep the pipes from freezing. Yes, you heard that correctly, the dryer, like for clothes, his dryer. See, their dryer actually used propane gas, and while using propane gas is beneficial in that it is cheaper and it dries things faster, it still requires you to have a gas hookup, and you have to make sure those connections are tight, as it could lead to a gas leak or even cause carbon monoxide poisoning. 
Yet Derek decided that he would finagle his dryer door to stay open and push the hot air into the room. Do you know, is there a reason why was the heat off because they were renovating? Um, I think it's because of the garage. So my assumption would be that the garage didn't have a heat source. And for some reason, he felt those pipes specifically needed to be warmed. Upon the initial inquiry, it was found that Derek's receipts did in fact prove he had been grocery shopping at the time, and perhaps the police could excuse, maybe due to a lack of intelligence or a high level of creative thinking, when it came to the dryer. But there is one thing the police couldn't ignore, or should I say three things, three scratches down the side of his face. When police questioned as to what caused them, Derek claimed to have been clearing ice-covered branches from a tree, and a few had caught him across the face. We'll have his picture on our website, but let me describe it to you. From his forehead to almost his chin on the right side of his face are three scratches. You could recreate the look by putting red paint on the end of your fingers and dragging them down your face. The scratches had some spots around the cheekbones where they stop and then start again. But you really could put this picture in the dictionary next to defensive wounds. While his alibi and potential motives were investigated, the medical examiner was working hard on the 35 pounds of Roxanne that remained. It was confirmed to be her after Marrow was retrieved from her bones and run with her sister's DNA, and she was found to be a match. This was done because physical and dental identification were no longer an option. In an effort to determine a cause of death, there was an attempt to conduct x-rays on the remains. Perhaps they would find a bullet or other metal, but alas, it couldn't be done. What was found was that there was no soot or ash in her lungs and no carbon monoxide in her blood. This meant she was dead before the fire overcame her. What was found, however, was blood in the airway. This is usually only seen in cases where blood has been breathed in, maybe from an assault or major trauma around the head and face. Eventually, the medical examiner ruled Roxanne's death a homicide, the cause officially being homicidal violence of undetermined type with post-mortem incineration. Meanwhile, the investigation at the house had been underway. Roxanne wasn't the only unexpected thing found in the garage. Investigators found pieces of a handgun near her, hence the attempted x-rays. Perhaps she had started a fire before taking her own life, but her family felt there were no signs of her having been suicidal. There was also a strange pile of pellets near her. Investigators were unsure as to what they were, but eventually realized it had been a burnt pile of kitty litter. But it hadn't been in a box, though. The investigating officer purchased similar litter and had it on his desk when a fellow officer from a different department saw it and casually asked if he was planning on starting a fire. Confused, the officer shared the old Boy Scout trick of using pellets of cat litter as an accelerant for a fire. I have never heard that. Yeah, you can take, it's it's those pellety kind, you know, mm-hmm. that look like rat poop, and you make the little pile and you can light them and they kind of hold the fire for you so it's like a fire starter isn't that interesting isn't it it was now believed that the fire at the duran home was purposefully set but detectives would have to prove it to help us better understand the science behind fire investigation let's turn to emily who has done some research on arson forensics that's your cue (laughs) 
fire is the process of combustion, which becomes visible to us through the chemical reaction of oxygen mixing with fuel. The fuel has to be ignited in order for combustion to occur. The reaction, or fire, will continue if heat, fuel, and oxygen remain. Arson is the criminal act of deliberately creating a fire on a property. Investigating arson can be difficult. And in the past, the people investigating how an arson fire was set were typically law enforcement or firemen. Years of experience seeing fires would lead to the interpretation of fire burn patterns, accelerant pour patterns, wood charring, the impact of heat on metal, glass, furniture, and walls. In 1977, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration collected information like this in order to create a booklet to assist in fire investigations. Unfortunately, this wasn't based on science, but merely experienced people's observations and gut feeling. This leads to the perpetuation of what we would call myth or faux science. The administration is no longer in existence, but that didn't stop others from doing the same and creating their own booklets. A few years after the booklet from LEAA published, another organization, the National Bureau of Standards, published the Fire Investigator's Handbook. This had the same information, so non-scientific-based information around patterns, acceleration, etc. The intent of these books were to aid law enforcement in properly identifying fires related to arson, but what it did was give so-called facts to people looking for arson fires, making the likelihood of falsely identifying arson suspects and putting them into the legal system. In the mid-80s, people started questioning if how we handled arson investigation was scientific enough. That's when a shift started. People wanted to ensure that the knowledge used in arson investigation was science-based. What does science-based mean? Well, science is founded in the scientific method. So if we go back to eighth grade real quick and talk about what that means, basically the scientific method is how you acquire knowledge by testing and repeating. So you're going to use your observations, form a hypothesis, and test it. And you're going to do that over and over again so that you can collect data and create results. It's important to note that science is reproducible. Otherwise, people are going to call you out for fake science. With the desire for fire investigation to be more scientific came experimentation and looking at patterns of fire across large sets of data. An accidental large-scale fire outside of Oakland, California would create major devastation, but also the opportunity to gain a ton of important knowledge for arson investigation. This occurred in 1991 and was basically a huge fire that was a known result of a brush fire, so it was definitely not arson. The fire resulted in the destruction of 3,000 houses and more than two dozen lives. Fire investigators from all over came to the location to study the damage. Many were pretty shocked to find that 50 of the 3,000 homes had signs of what they would have previously deemed arson, according to how they investigated fires. Oh, so if they had just come across that house having been on fire, they would have said arson from this point yes. when they know that it's from this brush fire. So yeah. they had to totally reevaluate exactly. how they Exactly. So for wow. years, there were certain things they were looking at that they would say, yep, that's an indication of arson. But what they're seeing in this 3,000 random fire with no arsonist, the exact same things were popping up, making them question everything. Wow. Call that a game changer. 
Signs included melted metal bed springs and melted glass. And they also found what they call crazed glass. This is basically tiny fractures in the windows that for years they were basically saying was caused by a rapid heating. So something, an accelerant. Something had to be set to make this right. happen. Right. So you would use some sort of accelerant and it would make the fire really hot, really fast, and it would cause the crazed glass. Interesting. Well, what they found out with this random fire was it actually wasn't caused from that at all. It was caused from the rapid cool down of a fire. So by them putting the fire out, they were causing, causing the crazed glass. Wow. How, and how, I don't know, mind altering would that be if you've been doing that for 10 years yep. as an expert and then you walk up to these houses and go, oh my God, have I put people away wrongly have is everything i know a lie (laughs) yeah i mean we're gonna find out in a minute but that's exactly what happened there's a lot of contention because there's a lot of people are like no this is the way we've always done it and then there are people going well wait a minute science to follow the science is saying otherwise let's experiment let's repeat these things let's actually do a test Mm -hmm. the lime street fire was a 1990 home fire in jacksonville florida Gerald Lewis escaped the fire with his young son, but was later arrested for six counts of murder based on the two women, one of which was pregnant, and the four children who were still trapped inside the house. A private investigator named John Latini worked on the Oakland investigation and was hired to work on this Jacksonville case. He basically wanted to use what he learned in Oakland, apply it to this case because he had doubts on whether this guy really had anything to do with the fire. Evidence aiding in the rest were burn patterns left by the fire. This was a very common tool of investigators at the time. They were burns known as V patterns. Now, they range in size, and the largest of the Vs typically indicated that that's where the fire started. The belief was the larger the V, the longer the fire burned in that location. But Latini discovered in his recreation, he recreated the Lime Street Fire for $20,000, bought a condemned house, redid it. He learned that the V patterns actually show up because of flashover. Now, this is basically how a fire changes when it moves room to room. Okay. So what they found was they know where they started the fire. They found that large V pattern in other places. So that wasn't... So it totally negates it. Exactly. Wow. And that was basically a lot of their argument. So anyway, with the help of this man, he gets Gerald free, and now he's dedicating his life to using science now he started as an old school guy using what everyone else was using then the oakland fire came up and his mind changed his life altered and now he's dedicating time to getting people out of prison good for him because that takes a lot to set aside your own pride and say i was wrong for a very long time and what i thought i was an expert in and now i'm willing to learn the new stuff and do good with it exactly i imagine a lot of people and i can't say this for sure but i imagine a lot of people gave up and moved on Mm -hmm. out of sheer embarrassment of just not really thinking, well, yeah, we could have tested that. We see now on shows like Dexter, for instance, his job was recreating some of these crime scenes. That isn't always the case for a lot of the stuff people were using to determine if something was arson. And it's rapidly changing, of course. But if you can repeat something, we should be doing it to have Mm -hmm. actual facts in a database Rather than, oh, yeah, grandpa's grandpa used, yeah, to, used exactly. to do it this way. Fireman says this. They know fire, right? 
the National Fire Protection Association stepped in to gather a committee of experts who could base fire investigation in science and actually develop guidelines around it that would no longer perpetuate myth but are founded in true science. The Oakland Fire and the Lime Street Fire aided to this, for sure. People like Latini, who saw the impact of how using science could change an investigation, worked to form a document called NFPA 921, Guide for Fire and Explosion Investigations. This was published in 1992 and is now regularly updated with information as they learn it. The publication totally changed how we investigate fire and arson. Throughout the 90s, as you can imagine, there was a lot of tension with fire investigations due to people set in their old ways, determining arson with myth rather than science. But late in the decade, more people started adopting the new ways and courts started listening. It was becoming clear that plenty of people were innocent sitting in prison for arson crimes that were actually accidents. Up until 2011, what they would call negative corpus was used frequently to prove an arson case. What that means is basically if there's no obvious source of an ignition, so no source or a viable source, then it must be arson. But as you can imagine, that's nuts because it's a fire. It's going to destroy most of all the evidence. Yeah. So that's just a very scary thought. So it's there because it's not there. Exactly. Like, I can't tell how this fire started. Somebody must have said it. That's very scary. And that's a little too open-ended when you're talking about the potential of putting someone in jail for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And that brings you a really good point that I actually have written here is what about the repercussions yeah. of using faulty science for the people who are actually involved? There have been a massive number of people who are falsely accused of arson. Over the past couple of decades, a number of people have been exonerated from imprisonment over arson that was ultimately proven to be accidental. Hantak Lee spent 25 years in prison for the arson murder of his daughter, which is eventually debunked and proven to be accidental, and he was exonerated in 2012. Lewis Taylor served 42 years for a fire in Tucson, Arizona, in a hotel fire that killed 29 people. He was freed in 2013 after investigators set out to clear his name. Now, they were arguing that the fire was an arson, but also that he was only 16 years old and had the wrong color skin. And so they blamed him. Now, the court disputed the claim. They said, no way. We stand by this. But they offered him a reduced sentence if he pled no or he pleaded no contest. That was really questionable to me. Uh-huh. But I mean, in the end, he's out. So... For, so 16 to 40, so his whole his life. His entire life. For for something that wasn't based on science at the time. That's really oh. scary. Horrific. But even worse than that, it can get more complicated. In Texas, Cameron Todd Willingham was executed in 2004 for the 1991 arson that resulted in the death of his three young daughters. It was a fire that at least eight experts have come forward to say it was accidental, knowing what they know now about fire science. And I would guess matched up to what he probably had said. I mean, I know you didn't do deep research, but I'm sure if we looked into it, he probably said it was X, Y, Z, and the experts eventually came around to say. Yeah, it's pretty devastating. (sighs) And then you can just imagine these are three people or four people I've called out now. There are many, many And to lose your children and then lose your own life it's I mean, the worst thing I and- there was actually a woman um who was accused of a mall fire and i i apologize i didn't write her name down she was accused of a mall fire and was just raked over the coals for 
this just so embarrassing everyone in her town and you just think about like how a little rumor can ruin your life this is even worse it's it's a major crime yeah major crime and if people die 29 people die they wanted to blame someone yeah it was probably an accident it's a lot better for them to say oh yeah let's look at this person not our faulty wiring or something you know like I, I don't know. That's just where my brain goes when you think of these bigger places. Oh, yeah. You want to. You it's want a lot to... easier to put one person away than Absolutely. to say we messed up and now that's a lawsuit of you yeah. know all these people. Oh, yeah. A lot of people, construction workers, mm-hmm. electricians. It could be anything. There was a forensic files actually where they found the gas line. And by that, I mean actual poured gas on the wood the that was pattern. under. Yeah. The poor pattern was under the carpet. And the guy had run out a certain door and the parents were in the house and he could have done this, but he did this and all this stuff. And then they found the pour pattern. They were like, there's no denying this. You poured gas through that. He's like, no, I didn't. And then they, someone did research. And even though he was, I don't, and I can't remember now if he went to trial or if he have actually served time. And they realized that from when the house was built, they used to use gasoline on the wood as like a process. And like so a varnish. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this pour line was actually from... 80 years prior or whatever and they were able to figure that out and it was like yeah he just had weird reaction and made bad choices that's interesting that you say that because in the lime street reenactment they noticed that there were patterns consistent with a poor pattern when they know they didn't use any accelerant so whether or not that had been used right we know now that it can cause just by the way the fire burns That's scary. But like any science, you have to have some skepticism. You have to have the idea to test something, to disprove it, to even make to to make fact. Right. It's like, okay, I think this is going to happen. Let's test it. It either does or it doesn't. Some factors are going to affect that. But it's cool to see how you can improve over time. But it's also very scary thinking back to all the people imprisoned on something someone said with conviction yeah. because that's what they know and that's their job. Yeah. Wouldn't it be fascinating if we could have, you know, in a perfect world and all the changes we need done anyway, but if you could have kind of conflicting experts as your permanent staff for an, an investigation. But, you know, if you have two people and go, well, I'm kind of the new school or I'm the old school and kind of talk both, it out. Yeah. And say, well, where could this have come from? And let's read. So I mean, that's really kind of just... what court is supposed to do. Each side could have an expert, but they're always going to skew to whatever that argument is, right? Yeah. You're basically paying them for their yeah. their findings. But I mean, it's, it's scary. And I mean, where we stand today is experimenting with the scientific method has shifted it, but it's continuing. We see stronger education in people and we see people with their actual job as a fire investigator now. But it isn't required to be that way. It varies state to state. There is no law saying you have to have a science degree to be a science fire expert. You just have to have some training in it. So we have a long way to go still. And yes, they may be using the NFPA 921 as their required documentation to study this, but there's no law saying they have to in every state. So it's important to have people out there willing to continually learn on these scientific methods and their so-called facts to ensure that we're on the right track. So I give props to people like that dude, Lentini, who 
swallows his pride, learns something new, and then runs with it because it's going to save a lot of people. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Emily, for that wonderful insight on fire forensics. You're welcome. While the litter could have been used to help start a fire, it wouldn't have spread so quickly and so intensely. It needed help. Perhaps Roxanne's car had had issues. It was, upon investigation, found to have had a disconnect at the battery, but it was pretty soon ruled out. Then they remembered the dryer. With the walls gone and firemen having moved things around to put out the inferno, it was impossible to tell just by looking if the gas line had been left undone purposefully or if the firemen, in their desperation, had pulled the dryer away from the pipe, ripping it off of the connection. That's when a forensic metalist entered the picture. Using a special microscope, he was able to determine that the threading had not been stripped. In addition, there had been oxidization on the thread. This meant the fireman had not yanked the dryer and removed the pipe. It had been unscrewed by hand. Ooh. Taking an even closer look, the forensic metalist noticed microscopic brass beads on the threading. When piecing the scene together, he realized this would have come from the brass connector above the gas line, meaning the flames were so hot they were actually melting the brass and the drops were falling onto the line, proving yet again that it was disconnected as the fire raged on. At the very least, these discoveries led to an official determination of arson. This also meant Derek had been lying about leaving the dryer on when he left. But more than that, it was the red flag of suspicion all the investigators were looking for, pointing them in the direction of a cause and a suspect. Since finding a pipe with melted metal doesn't exactly make for an open and shut case, the detectives continued digging. Side note, this case is overall pretty uncovered. I googled for quite some time and didn't find a whole lot, so most of this information does come from the Forensic Files episode, but during that googling, I came across DuranMurderTrial.com. I started skimming through the writings and thought at first that the new Mrs. Duran, which I'll get to that in a minute, had written it, but then I got to the bottom and I realized it was Derek himself. In the interest of sharing information from the accused murderer, I will be sharing what the prosecution had against Derek and what his excuses are surrounding them. First, forensic files in general. He states that it is all false information, and it sounds like he's not much of a fan. He claims the prosecution didn't use any of the information, but again, the lack of coverage leaves me unable to find what exactly was shown in court. He does mention at some point that there was a 4,000-page transcript, but it was not available online, and he had thrown out his copy. Convenient. So let's start with the cat litter, a Boy Scout trick. Guess who was an Eagle Scout and a Scout leader? <gasps> really? Mm-hmm. So what did he have to say about it? It was just cat litter. Do they have cats? I hope you say no. They did have cats. Oh, okay. <laughs> that would have been good. And having cats, all of that, and that he was a Boy Scout, that's circumstantial. True. Not a ton to go on. Then the face scratches. Again, it couldn't look more like a handful of nails were dragged down his face in self-defense. According to Derek, not only had he been clearing branches, but he forgot another part. That his wife, while they were breaking up their own dogs having a dog fight, had accidentally raked his face the same morning of the fire. Oh, boy. It also bothers him that there were no other marks on his body, so how could he have done anything? 
He was like, there's nothing on my hands or my arms. How could it be self-defense? Well, you're probably wearing clothing. According to Derek, the lies about the branches and rake were brought up at trial as well as a he-couldn't-keep-his-story-straight argument. Mm. But Derek's defensive team brought in a tragic-situation human psychology expert and explained that he was too distraught after the loss of his wife to keep everything straight. And yes, both the ice-covered branches and the rake were to blame for the three scratches on his face. Mm. Which sounds like a lot of face interaction to have three marks. So... Kind of like, did one did one happen to go with the... have life insurance on her and insurance on their garage? I'll get to motive. Oh, oh don't you worry. Okay, I'm excited for that. Another lie, his alibi. When piecing together when he would have left for the store and come back, according to the receipts, there was still an hour of his time that was unaccounted for. Derek does not touch on his alibi on his website. Then there was the blood when being questioned by police on that first day, they noticed a small stain on Derek's pants. When responding to their query about the spot, he said it was mud. When they tested it, it was found to be Roxanne's blood. Derek's defense was that there was no explanation of how it could have gotten there. There was no other blood anywhere, and his personal favorite, they shared the pants. <laughs> Which, in fact, was proven by DNA that they did indeed both wear them. What? And he didn't know how long it had been since they had been washed or when the blood got on the pants. They're close to the same size. So it wasn't like, oh, this bizarre thing of... I mean, it's Right, kind it's of, not like a tiny person in a giant pair of right, pants. Right, I want to wear my boyfriend's pants in there. Yeah, I mean, he's significantly taller, but they're both like... Yeah, they're average sizes. Yeah. yeah. That is... I'm sorry, I'm... <laughs> Just really thinking about those shared pants right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, it, it's something. It's I mean, give me the shared pants. I got to go to the grocery store. And like how many of the pants were shared? I mean, I've not heard of this. I've not heard of. I mean, no, I mean, I've worn. I've thrown on boyfriend's this is going to pajama be a thing pants. For me now. I've thrown on boyfriend pajama pants and hoodies. Like and shorts to bed, but jeans. I've even had an emergency situation where I had to wear a boyfriend's pair of clean underwear. Derek claims Roxanne must have gotten a bloody nose while horseback riding and a drop fell onto the pant leg. Although there is no evidence of her suffering from nosebleeds or that he knew of a specific incident in which she may have bumped her nose maybe and then had one. But he also argues that the placement of the spot, which was on the back of the pant, lower part at the cuff wasn't conducive to a fight but it also doesn't sound conducive to a nosebleed personally i think it's odd that you would look at a spot on your clothes and unless you were sure of what it was say something like mud but to play devil's advocate i don't have the interrogation tapes or transcript so it is possible that he had said something like oh i don't know it kind of looks like mud or something which lends itself to being unsure or if they pointed it out and he quickly responded with a certainty of, it's mud. So we'll never know. The murder charge was the hardest fight for both sides. With lung tissues and blood samples showing different results to each side, it made for quite the contradiction. 
The medical examiner couldn't determine a cause of death, but was certain there was not enough soot or carbon monoxide in her lungs and blood to show she had been alive during the fire. While the expert brought on by the defense claimed those levels could have been maintained if she was using a cloth over her face. The blood in her throat could have come from the burning itself and capillaries bursting. With the fire itself being one option, the prosecution presented another, that Roxanne had been strangled. However, there wasn't enough of Roxanne to prove or disprove that, and on the defensive side, they claimed the remaining muscles didn't show any trauma conducive with strangulation. Well, because they x-rayed her body, right? They attempted to, but kind of couldn't get... I realize a lot of her was gone, but I feel like bones remained. Right, but that wouldn't show strangulation. If nothing was broken. Right. Okay. Because it sounds like there was some muscle and tissue and and tendon left that didn't have marks conducive to strangulation. Um, But then it's also hard to imagine that someone could be burned that badly and you would still have enough to see that, you know, to where it's can you really get in there to see I picture the 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 skin and fat is gone by then but I feel like well the fire was burning for over three hours so yeah it's hard to say because I am a fire expert obviously I don't know if you knew that but yesterday's google search really helped with that (laughs) the defensive side did see so they say that there was smoke and stuff and she had it in her blood was it like then, a significant amount? Depends on who you ask. Oof, this is good. Very conflicting. One says not enough to even worry about. One says fatal amount in the blood. Huh. And then there's the fire. What if he didn't do anything with her beforehand and just left the gas line undone in hopes that the blaze would do all the work for him? That was another theory presented by the prosecution. Derek argued that due to the layout of the house and in accordance to the fire, it showed more so that it had started at the car, not the dryer. With that argument in mind, Mm -hmm. were they able to prove that he knew she'd be in that area at that time of the day? Was she going to be getting in her car to go somewhere or be in the garage for any reason? That's a very good question. He had actually said it was a very typical lazy Sunday. So why would And they would had just he, been lounging at the house. Why would he plan a murder in a garage if she wasn't getting in her car to go anywhere that day? Yeah, I don't think it was like, oh, I know she goes into the garage and has a like secret c- cigarette. Right. And she's going to light that and it'll that, blow up. See, that seems an argument in favor for him. Yes, I agree. While having almost no body to work with, no official cause of death, and no official cause of the fire are tricky enough, detectives couldn't narrow down a motive either. Roxanne and Derek appeared to be happily married and had no known enemies outside the marriage. The prosecution and Roxanne's sister believe it may have come down to defiance. There was word that Derek's job might have been changing and they would have had to have moved. Roxanne loved that house and her horses, so moving was not something she would have been interested in. This might have sent Derek over the edge, and once again, instead of just getting a divorce, he murdered her. Perhaps it was the rake to the face or a conversation about moving had come up, but prosecution presented that an argument ensued. Maybe it escalated and became physical. Purposefully or not, Derek then went too far and now had to do something with his wife's body. Since he was going to need to move anyway, why not burn the place down? So in regard to the fire science that we discussed, there was an expert that 
as you mentioned, there are maps of the home and we'll have those on our blog. And the expert basically pointed to the fact that the car had suffered the most damage as had that area of the garage, not the utility room, which, which is where the dryer was. would point to it being the origin. So the defensive side is saying... This looks like an electrical fire started by this car that just happened to, out of nowhere, burst into flame, apparently, while parked in the garage. and Automobile that, combustion. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that that then led to the rest of the fire. Okay. I have a hard time, because I'm not an expert, not because I'm stubborn, but how does a car just suddenly, because something's disconnected from a battery, if nothing's running good point we need we know now you need something to ignite it and you need fuel and it would be interesting like you said because of this timeline because this is mid 90s had that information of the new studies in rural oregon mm -hmm, had that made its way here and because you know the argument is burn patterns and uh where it originates and all that but is it so it'd be interesting to have someone kind of look at it now Now. Mm -hmm. and say what does that really or even recreate it try to recreate it that would be juicy i like that it'd be very expensive though so remind me where was the kitty litter actually found it was in the utility room by the dryer so that uh, that is interesting because there's you know forensic miles who we're going to talk to later she talked about two potential areas yeah so that argument goes for one of them the automobile is the other i really feel with this case every argument of why he did it you have something that says that he didn't and that's Which kind is of why what's so it makes it so interesting to us, but also so difficult to be okay with somebody going to jail or not going to jail. Exactly. And speaking of going to jail, with all those slivers of doubt, the jury could not bring a verdict of murder. However, they did find Derek Doran guilty of arson and first degree manslaughter. Manslaughter is defined as committed recklessly under circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life. I wouldn't feel comfortable with him getting murder conviction. I what don't think constitutes first degree with manslaughter in Oregon? It's criminal negligence that falls into second degree manslaughter. Okay. That's what you're saying, where it's I've done something I screwed that up. could be like Depending on the situation, something like a drunk driving or right. you left something unattended. You did something wrong and it caused right. the death of someone else. Whereas this is with the circumstances where you were, were reckless about something, not caring about what might happen to the person. So it's like a cheeky way to get him in jail for murder. Pretty much. And manslaughter one uh, has a required 10-year minimum sentencing. And if it's manslaughter too, I'm guessing it's much lower. I'm sure. I would assume there'd be some flexibility there, yeah. Derek served his time of 10 years and was released in November of 2006. In October of 2010, he remarried. In the Forensic Files episode about this case, where I got most of the information, the officers all describe his attitude and personality as being a know-it-all, acting like he was smarter than everyone and very narcissistic. This was shown in his conversations with police and that during the trial, he would even email his co-workers and friends bragging about what would be his acquittal and how this whole thing was like a chess game. Oh, my God. Could you imagine being at work and you get an email from the guy that got arrested for potentially killing his wife? Well, you know, I would. Well, we would I would enjoy it. that. <laughs> wow. Mm -hmm. So that gives that's a little taste of his confidence and arrogance. I initially brushed off 
their comments because most officers do say that about perpetrators. However, when I found his website, DuranMurderTrial.com, and I realized that he was the person writing it and how arrogant he was, I quickly started to see what the officers had. Here's a good example. Mm -hmm. On his website, he writes about what his wife thinks about him in third person. Quote, his new wife Janine is a headstrong retired radio personality and radio station owner who describes Mr. Duran as the most gentle, thoughtful, and loving man she has ever known. They now live on seven rural acres where they rescue horses, including BLM wild horses, BLM land being government land, basically, dogs, cats, and a macaw. In 2013, Mr. Duran earned an MBA from the University of Portland. Now semi-retired, Derek works part-time with Janine, managing their real estate holdings. He wrote that about himself. To be fair, maybe he interviewed her. <laughs> Darling, I'm writing about how you feel about how me. How would you Give describe me, me three dearest? Words. Well, you're kind-hearted and caring. That's right, real estate. In fact, you can go from that page to his personal page to learn even more about him from him. He even has a link to their properties. So if you're looking to rent and maybe don't, or do, you sick freaks, want to rent from a convicted killer, check it out. Additionally, there is something that just rubs me the wrong way with this. Let's say he did in fact do something to cause his wife's death. Okay, you served your time, now you can move on. You don't have to talk about it, let alone make a website dedicated to it. Even if he didn't do anything, it's over and done now. You're released. You're living your best life. Why keep arguing? Can I ask you something? Please. If you were wrongly accused of something, would you let it go? I like to think that if that were to ever happen, I would find a way to use it to benefit others. So if I did 10 years, I would I would use that argument and that battle to try to be and getting out. And I can out, see that. But and then coming out and saying, I'm going to work with the Innocence Project and maybe they can clear my name for me and then I can True. be an example and say, look how Not this Not everybody is like that, though. And he comes off to me from someone who doesn't know him as a very A-type control freak personality, narcissistic tendencies they cannot let stuff go. Right. So if they felt like the world was against them, I could see dedicating the rest of your life to trying to clear your name. I, I don't disagree. So I but mean, it's to me, that's almost like, of, huh, okay. It's it's intriguing to see someone spend that much energy and time yeah. on something that has passed and you can move on from and do your own healing or whatever it sure. is you need to do if you were wrong. If you're hel if you're healthy, you would hope you would do that. I I, I would like to think if I did my time, I could le leave it in my past and move on mm -hmm. and start a new life. But and it, it I is know I fixate, to say. so I I could see myself fixating on something mm -hmm. like that if that happened to me. Then again, is he just reliving what or, he did or thriving on the attention? Right. So speaking of him arguing it and protesting, he is actually quite the commenter on YouTube. If you go to the video Forensic Files Season 11, Episode 39, you will find that as recently as five months ago, Derek was arguing his defense. Here are just some of his many, many comments. When someone asked what kind of dryer works with the door open, quote, 
FYI, I ran the dryer with the door closed and used the exhaust hose to thaw frozen pipes. Hey. Running dryers put out a lot of heat. The police investigator misunderstood what I told him when he interviewed me in 1995. This TV show is full of incorrect information and debunked theories. The TV show left out the only blood test of liquid blood had 32% CO, a deadly level. The other blood tests that showed low levels were all from dried blood samples. The only way to get high levels of CO in one's blood is by inhaling it. See www.duranmurdertrial.com for the evidence that was in the trial. He should have used an outside website. I do like that he's citing something though. When you that's argue his something, own site. I know that's what I'm saying. If he had used a third party, it'd be better. <laughs> that's like using Wikipedia that doesn't count. I'm so interested in this because he has so much conviction. In regards to someone asking about the DNA, quote, the only DNA test results from the trial were about those found on my genes. There were equal amounts of mine and Roxanne's DNA on the genes tested. The logical conclusion was that we both had worn the pants. She often wore my work pants, we fit the same, when doing horsework and may have gotten a bloody nose while riding and it whipped and wiped her hands on the pants cuff. Also, the blood on my pants was in a very unusual location, if it were the result of a homicide. Hmm. I do like that he uh, summarized what we were questioning about the pants, which was horsework. Yes. Horse and grocery runs. <sighs> I mean, it is plausible. So, since his time in prison, what has he been up to? Quote, as for my life since prison, I lived first with my best friend, best man in our wedding and friend and coworker of Roxanne. Then I found a landlord who would rent to me, an ex-con, worked for another friend in his small business. He also know Roxanne and I well. Then got hired by VTech Telephone as a technical writer. I was hired initially through Kelly Temp Service and I checked the felon box on the app, but they apparently didn't notice. After six months, VTech offered me a full-time position and I checked the box again. They noticed, and they left it up to the president to decide if he would hire a felon. They did, and I worked there for several years, and with my new income, I bought a three-bedroom home for myself. It was then that I met my second wife via Match.com. She winked at me. Oh I was very open about my conviction on my Match.com he profile. He checked the box, obviously. Yeah. We married three months later and have been very wow. happily married since. Wow, 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 wow. Three months later, and you know this guy is a convicted felon, huh? Hmm. Hmm. That's and, interesting. And there's so much to unpack there, which we don't have to get into all of it. But instead of just saying, I'm living my life. And this isn't to say you can't grieve a certain way or you can't be angry if you were wrongfully convicted. Oh, he's arguing up front. But to say, the president of the company <laughs> had to decide if they would keep me. And I and was did. so good that they obviously had to, like, oh boy, just pompous. And when someone had the same question as I about the lack of coverage on the case, quote, the 4,000 pages of trial transcript is not available online. I kept my copy for many years after I was released, but I tossed it about five years ago in spring cleaning. Mm -mm. Somewhere, I think I still have the reports from the three fire investigators my lawyer hired. They all agreed that the fire was accidental. The kitty litter was tested by the prosecution. It failed to burn, so it was not in the trial. Well, I do think... He probably has a point there with the fire investigation, especially totally. being the 90s. Absolutely. I will say for someone who is so argumentative and engaging online with this, 
doesn't strike me as someone who would throw away the transcript. They would refer he to it. He mentions it multiple times in multiple comments that he was cleaning out and basically the wife didn't want him holding on to. Well, that I could see. But also, would Her you Her first ever... logic she's ever I employed. Have, <laughs> I have paperwork for like a car I bought that was totaled. Like the car doesn't exist, but it's like, well, you just never know what like... And that's a piece of paper. That's mm. not the transcript well, I, of see, how I, I ended up in scan jail. scan it and put it online, but... Yeah, I don't know if something seems to have impacted his life so greatly and he can't let it go. Mm-hmm. It strikes me as odd that he would dump something he could easily refer to in his YouTube comments. I agree. When someone commented, how can you marry someone and then kill them because it's not working out? Can't you just divorce and go your separate ways? Mm-hmm. Now, this is just a comment at the video. This isn't towards him. Right. This was just someone They're watching speaking the their piece. He again didn't argue that he was innocent. He instead responded with, quote, the police looked into this potential motive and found nothing. No motive was ever found. One of my personal favorites, a commenter was saying they were impressed with Derek having a successful life out of prison and sent their sympathies for his loss of Roxanne. Mm. His response? Thank you. Actually, Roxanne would be impressed with us. (sighs) Us being he and his new wife, of course. We rescue horses, rehabilitate them, then find good homes for them. We lose a lot of money doing it. Horse boarding and training costs $900 or more per month per horse. We budget 10% of our income to helping animals. That's his response to... She'd be impressed. I'm sorry that you lost your wife and good for you for moving on. She would be impressed with us. These comments go on and on and I could read them all day. But what I find most upsetting is the continued argument. He doesn't sound like someone saying, I felt this was a false science and a lot was proven differently in court, but all that matters is I loved my wife. Nothing like that. Or that I didn't hurt her or I had nothing to do with her death. Instead, his arguments remain solely about him. Me, me, me. And they almost all include the link to his website. I go back and forth on this case, that science isn't always perfect, that you can't judge people for something they may or may not have done just because they're a douchebag online, But there are just too many coincidences here for there not to have been something more than a fluke accident to have taken place. But that's just my opinion. We are happily joined today by Miles and Company from Forensic Miles. Miles, would you like to take a moment and introduce everyone that's with you and tell us a little bit about your show? Yeah. Hi. Um, my name is Miles and myself and my co-host Sean, who's here too. Hey guys. Um, and my two dogs, Mo and Nola, the Husky, which I'm sure you can hear. We have a podcast called Forensic Miles where we cover the original episodes of Forensic Files and we do research and investigate and see what was left out of the episodes. So it's pretty fun. Definitely check us out wherever you hear podcasts. Absolutely. And we're so excited to have you on for this show because it's one of the episodes that I found almost only the information I had from the episode. So we're covering Fired Up, season 11, episode 39, which you've done an episode on as well. And it's interesting how little it's been covered. And there's kind of some argument back and forth that can be made, especially with Arson Science, how the accused feels about it. So what were some interesting things you maybe came across while you were doing your take on the story? The whole case was really interesting to us because when we first watched the Forensic Files episode, we were like, 
wow, 100% guilty that, I mean, that's it. That's, there's no question about it. But when you start even doing a little bit of investigating, you start to kind of have questions about it. Mm -hmm. Even the fact that in the forensic files episode, they admitted that they didn't have a motive. They weren't a hundred percent sure even where the fire started. Although, you know, they really thought that it was, um, the dryer. Right at the end of my kind of research, when I found that Derek was responding to people on his YouTube channel and he was responding to almost every comment that was made. And I thought that was really fascinating. I'd never seen that before. I don't even know how to describe his comments. I mean, really, truly narcissistic and so overly defensive, but not in a protection of himself or his deceased wife, but in a argumentative way. And it's almost like every comment that he says is basically saying the exact same thing over and over and over again, just using different words to say it. Yeah, I really, all that came to mind was thou dost protest too much, just over and over of just, buddy, okay. Are you feeling a little bit more conflicted now as far as it could be either way? Or do you feel more almost sure that he didn't do it? Where do you kind of stand on it? I think for me, it's kind of a little bit of both. I think that they had good evidence that he actually did the crime. But like Miles said, there was no motive. There were a few pretty important things that didn't all completely add up. And then the fact that he was um, convicted of manslaughter versus murder, that kind of throws me off a little bit just because there's enough there to say he did it, but not quite enough to give him the full-on murder versus the manslaughter. So Yeah, there's obviously reasonable doubt there. Yeah, I definitely feel the same. I feel like it could go either way, really. There were just little things, like the fact that he had the excuse for that mark on his face, that it was the rake, and that he got into an argument with her earlier that day. We were even talking about it, too, because we have dogs, and we would never think to use a rake to fight, to break up the dog fight. Absolutely not. And that's coming from like an animal lover, which he said that she was. And if she was an animal lover and she had these Rottweilers for years, I am 100% sure they would have come up with a better solution than sticking a rake in between them. Yeah. I'm pretty sure pouring beer on on dogs breaks up the fight. (laughs) Like, I mean. It just doesn't add up. So there's so much that in the same amount that you can say, I don't feel that he did it. There's just as much that says, hey, he probably did. I was going to say, as an outside perspective, I haven't seen the episode. I heard Alicia tell half the story, and I heard a bit of your podcast as well. I try to stay focused on the evidence, and there is evidence on both sides. So I find that very interesting that they both have an argument. But there is no motive, right? That's clear. That. But I would say, you know, if... There was, like, what is the word? Um, If the relationship was not going well, you don't really need a motive. I mean, if there was abuse, if there was arguments, he could have snapped. He could have, and nobody would know about that because, you know, some people are really good at hiding Right, that's true. An argument that just got out of control. Right, and and... You know, you don't have to have ever been violent before to flip out. And though, if it was that, that kind of would say it would be in the moment rather than a planned murder. It's true. Mm -hmm. But you could counter that and say, 
it was an accident and then the panic and what do I have that could cover this? Okay. A fire. Oh, I've, I have propane. That's a good point too. It looks like it takes a lot of thought than I think it really does to just go, I'll just undo that and hope it explodes mm -hmm. kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. I think the way that we covered it was definitely, I don't think we thought it was premeditated the way that we covered it in our episode, I think was more something happened and then, and, and that's the question. Yeah. If it wasn't premeditated, how could he have figured that out within minutes? And then also, why would he have started the fire, whether it was in the garage or the laundry room, so far away from where she was? Why wouldn't he have started the fire in the hallway where she was found? I'm assuming since there's so little about this case, I'm sure you found his website, Miles. Oh, yeah, that was oh, really my gosh. So I'm about to read from that as well. And it is, you know, you, you kind of hear that on most forensic files and most most shows. Like, yeah, Emily can't wait to hear all this stuff. Um, on most shows, there's usually at least one officer that's like, oh, this arrogant bastard. And he knew he could get away with it. You know, there's kind of always that feeling. But with this guy, holy cow, like narcissistic to the nth degree of me, me, and I was reading through and I was like, is there someone obsessed with this case that created this website? Is this his new wife that's defending him? And then I realized, oh my God, he's writing all this in third person, even writing in third person what his wife thinks about him. Oh, he, she thinks he's so great. He's the best man she's ever met in her life. Yeah. <laughs> According to him about himself. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely felt like I hit the jackpot when I found that website yeah. because I have seen, there was another episode that we covered. I can't remember which one, but he also had a website and it was like one page going over what happened, mm -hmm. but his website, Derek's website, like you're scrolling, you're scrolling and scrolling and scrolling forever. Yeah. yeah. It just never ending. And it's so fascinating because it's like, you've done your time. You know, there's not what are you expecting to come from that who are you trying to change people's minds the thing that i felt was really creepy about that his professional website is that he's got a full timeline of his life including the marriage with roxanne which i felt was really just in poor taste <laughs> When I was looking at it, he had responded most recently only a couple weeks ago. So I'm sure, almost 100% sure, if somebody reached out to him, he would respond. And we shared that pair of pants. Oh my Jeez. God. My favorite part of this entire case. I mean, like, what? Do you guys have shared The pants? partner pants. No, we, we do not have a pair of those shared pants. We're gonna, so you don't love each other? We're then, getting then? murder in the rain. No. <laughs> Not that much. I won't have that convenient excuse, Handy. <laughs> Did they have like a section in their closet devoted to <laughs> the shared pants? Was it just one pair? What, and yeah, and Emily's like, we're going to get a pair when we tour and then we'll like put stuff on it from each place we go and we all have to wear it. And our Patreon <laughs> members can get it for a week. <laughs> <laughs> but we will be washing them. Another thing that I thought was interesting that I, I didn't see the trial documents, so I'm not a hundred percent sure that this is true, but it's the one where the strangulation theory, mm -hmm. Derek said 
that in the closing arguments, the prosecution basically came up with this strangulation theory. And the jury was told to disregard it, but it was in closing arguments. So there were no rebuttals. Right. So like people were left with this strangulation theory that had no evidence because there was no evidence. There was no evidence. Yeah. So I thought that that was kind of interesting. It's a confusing one of, did he do 10 years unjustly and didn't, you know, he was innocent and lost 10 years of his life or did he kill his wife and only did 10 years and now gets to live his life as a free man? I will say one thing though, that if there was a burning house and my animals were in there, I wouldn't hesitate a single second to run in and save my dogs. And you know what? People might call me crazy, but (laughs) there are family. I think that's very normal. And I think most people would do that even without thinking, you know, it would just be instinct. Yeah. My, my pets are in there. I have to go save them. And again, devil's advocate, was that just something he thought of that would be convenient Mm -hmm. to say she's an animal lover and our cats were in there. Of course she went back in. She's a good person. Very true. It is true. The more stories you do and looking, especially these older cases, I'm finding I feel more and more conflicted on how frequent things seem questionable, how there can be a lot of evidence that points to a person, but maybe we've been aware, but now we're very aware of how police systems work and how judicial systems work state to state. And, you know, I want to close this case, so we'll put a name on it. And I'm finding more and more cases where I just don't feel as sure. Are you finding that as you make your way through the episodes? Like 100%. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I think, you know, I love Forensic Files. It's a great show. But I also think that when we're watching it, we have to keep in mind that it was made a long time ago. And just like you said, practices are changing and forensic science is not held some forms of forensic science are not held in the same degree as they were before. And a lot of the ones that we're watching and we're covering, I mean, I'm pretty sure every single one of them, it's pattern matching. It's teeth impressions. It's eyewitness statements. And all of those have now come out to be flawed to like a a severe uh, point. So I think that's really interesting. And I mean, even a while back, we covered the staircase episode, which, you know, was huge. But we're talking about that blood analysis guy whose name I don't remember, who has literally been, I don't know. He like does debunk. Debunk, yeah. 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 And then there was another guy who was, I think, also in that episode who I don't remember what his name is either, but same thing. And he was also debunked and he's in multiple forensic files episodes yeah. being interviewed yeah. about blood analysis. It was like over a thousand cases that he had, he had testified on and he didn't even have a degree. <laughs> so they better go back and look at all of those cases. And I think some of these things are like so ingrained in the other non-true crime TV shows. Like, um, I was just watching CSI Miami and Horatio asks this girl if he can take a picture of the bite mark on her shoulder. And she goes, Oh yeah, because it's as accurate as a fingerprint. And I'm like, what? Yeah. I realized that came out like years ago, but 
come on now, like, let's fix that. Oh, absolutely. I cannot watch Law and Order SVU. I mean, I do kind of <laughs> hate watch it, but it gets, I just scream at it and go, you wouldn't do. And I have to like check myself, be like, you can't ask someone that you can't <laughs> like just <laughs> over and over. And that is how people get most of their legal information. So they don't question, you know, if I'm just a casual person that maybe watches Law and Order sometimes and I don't dive into this other side of true crime and I get called to a jury, that's the lens I'm looking at it through. And that can lead to some problems. I actually took a class in college where we talked about that, how the effect of CSI has on juries and you come in with this notion that DNA is invaluable and everything that comes out of DNA is going to point to a guilty. It was very interesting. So we would take an episode and we dissect all the problems with it. And I think within 30 seconds of an episode, we found like 12 flaws in how they do forensic analysis. So it's very, very interesting, but that's scary because we're a nation of TV watchers or a world really. So. Uh, well, thank you so much, Forensic Miles, for joining us today to talk about this very unusual and interesting case. And be sure to check out Forensic Miles at ForensicMiles.com, I'm assuming. I don't know your website. You can listen to us on uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor. And then our website is um, ForensicMiles.com, which is where we've got all of our um, merch and our blog. Yeah. And, and, and of course your Instagram because you make hilarious memes. Very funny. Thank you. Yes. And it's forensic miles, miles with a Y. <laughs> yes. M Y L E S. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so well, much guys. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, for thanks having so us. much. Yeah, have a good afternoon. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you again to Forensic Miles for joining us today and discussing this case. If you would like to find out more about this case, I guess you can go to durhammurdertrial.com. It's quite intriguing. And be sure to check out Forensic Miles anywhere you listen to podcasts. And suck my balls. I only have three friends. Yeah. Sounds a lot of fun. Yeah. That does, that, that does sound a lot of fun. And then every once in a while, just be super weird. You shut up. I'm with annoying. Sorry. experimenting with removing words like Kevin from The Office. <laughs> I keep thinking there's a large cat. Okay. It's a pillow. Do you hunger? Do you need more gums? Mm -hmm. You yeah. need gummy? I can't have gummy. Why? Oh. It has hooves. Mm. I don't eat hooves. To be a hindrance. Sorry, I thought you were raising your hand. Oh no, I was riding. And then a I horse. realized you were riding a horse, and then I had to try to not laugh. Oh, she's galloping. <laughs> I'll try to read and keep. And I was thinking. I can see that. <laughs> I heard it. Mind to mind. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're doing so good. Oh, then what did you do? I can change. Um, just kind of like basic. Um, how it's changed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm realizing how bad my writing is because I was doing this while Chloe's watching Bigfoot, a hundred volume, in the room with me. <laughs> I think that totally fits. Okay, cool. I, yeah. absolutely. That was very interesting, and yep. I love cool. that. I'm glad. Yeah. Cut all my compliments out, please. <laughs>
taking it and even that one time in Orlando was so awesome when she got drunk. I did not like it. <clears throat> I did, and I was tipsy what at was she best. Like? Fun. Oh, <laughs> ouch! I bet he was cruising, thinking, driving the streets, like just out in like in our rural friend Jamie, Gale blasting Street, some. Just... What is that band she liked? Lady Gaga. Three Eleven. Oh. Only when it's summertime. She would drive the rural roads. Yeah. Let out some steam. It's very funny for me just now to think about the listener and how much they know about Jamie. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) Like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jamie. Oh, Jamie. (laughs) She's the one that uh, needs a story in her porn, had a meatball hoagie before a concert. Like, (laughs) you know. And all the girls have been like, who do you think they'll mention first? And then Matt texted me. He's like, oh, I got a shout out on it. So shout out to Matt, Jamie, Jaws, Doug, uh, Amber, Yara, Morgan. And that's it for our friends. If oh, I, no, I have my own you, friends have no I could one. mention as well. But. Hi, Morgan. I'm sorry to laugh, but it's all I can think of as the sisterhood of the traveling pants. It's like they're farm pants or something. Like I cat feeding future boyfriend out there we're having a shared pair of pants i hope you like skinny jeans and you better have a big butt so they can fit (laughs) i hope he has the juiciest juiciest bootay one time in seventh grade this girl who used to be my best friend accused me of trying to steal her boyfriend she wrote a very nasty letter to me and left it on my door and in it i will never forget the haunting words and p.s don't wear those overalls they make you look like a barn and i wore them every day that week good for you but it still hurt my feelings but don't let your body define not wearing overalls wear those overalls if you like them exploding did you say exploding i said bursting (laughs) bursting let me write that down The prosecution and roxanne's sister believed it may had come (gasps) oh Uh, Miss Corpus, uh, I like to go by negative. Thank you. This is murder in the rain. I'm negative Corpus. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever wheeze like that again. Feels good to wheeze. No. I hate it. <laughs> murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) hi guys my name is miles and i wanted to tell you about my true crime podcast forensic miles my co-host sean and i investigate the cases in every episode of forensic files You've seen the show, you know the crime, but is there more to the story? Let's find out. Check us out on Instagram at Forensic Miles, Miles with a Y, and listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts. See you there.